go back into music for a moment because we have to know at the top of our third segment, which is where we usually place our obituaries, the sad passing of Mary Travers, one-third of the immortal Peter, Paul, and Mary. We like to note that folk music is uh, embedded, I think, in the American psyche. And uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary were, well, I think as good as, they, good as it gets. Not that I pretend to be an authority about that form of music. Uh, uh, by the way, you should check out, if you've never done so, the Saturday Morning Folk Show here on KDVS. Alter- on an alternative weeks, Robin Fox and Bill Wagman bring you the best of, of this genre. And although I cannot speak authoritatively about uh, about this form of music, I would note that Peter, Paul, and Mary are are a part of my youth. Their very first album, Peter, Paul, and Mary, in 1962, spent seven weeks at number one and yielded the top ten hit with which we began uh, this segment, "If I Had a Hammer." Would like to note. Uh, would like to thank Robin Fox for contributing the fact that uh, it was Trini Lopez, a now uh, I think often uh, overlooked. Uh, uh, musician of the 1960s that that created the arrangement for If I Had a Hammer. They really uh, took their art form to the mainstream and were, I think, a fixture on, on television as well as radio. Noted the Week magazine with their guitars and goatees. Peter Yarrow and Paul Stuckey exuded, exuded a mildly bohemian look, but it was Mary Travers who drew all eyes as she shook her hair, bobbed her head in time to the music, and clenched a fist when the lyrics took a dramatic turn. And yes, like most of the men in America, I surely had a crush on Mary Travers. The London Times noted that Peter, Paul, and Mary won five Grammys and were at the forefront of the protest movements of the 1960s performing at the Lincoln Memorial during Martin Luther King's epic March on Washington. It was noted that throughout her life, Mary Travers was immensely proud of the fact that Martin Luther King had asked her to hold his child on her lap while he spoke. Although it's sad to note uh, that Mary has, uh, has passed on, her music uh, will remain with us, including uh, the whimsical song Puff the Magic Dragon, which went to number two in the 60s, and uh, Leaving on a Jet Plane, written by a young John Denver. We also note the passing this week of William Sapphire, a conservative columnist, former Nixon speechwriter, and authority on the English language, who was described as being a man who feared no politician or corner of the English language. It was said in his obituaries that the conservative writer was a mentor and friend to a generation of Washington journalists of all political persuasions. Michael Oreski, senior managing editor of the AP, said Sapphire believed in the values of journalism, of ferreting out the truth and holding leaders to account. Republicans, and Democrats. Above all, he loved to encourage his colleagues to break a good story and raise hell. Of course, I would note that in his criticism of Republicans and Democrats, Sapphire tended to lean a little bit harder on the Democrats. In fact, while he was a speechwriter in the Nixon White House, Mr. Sapphire penned Vice President Spiro T. Agnew's famous phrase, nattering nabobs of negativism. Sapphire later claimed He was criticizing not the press, but the Vietnam defeatists. He was an unabashed supporter of Israel and is credited along with George Willie and William F. Buckley as uh, those who made conservatism respectable in the 1970s and thus paved the way for the Reagan Revolution. He won a Pulitzer Prize for commentary in 1978, 
for his scathing columns on the financial affairs of Carter White House Budget Director Burt Lance. As I say, he tended to lean a little bit harder on the Democrats. In fact, although uh, most of the prose uh, at his passing appears laudatory, I think Bill Sapphire is deserving of a fair amount of criticism. He also called it an undisputed fact that hijacker Mohammed Atta met with senior Iraqi intelligence officials, officials in Prague in April 2001, a meeting which the 9-11 Commission and just about every, everyone else who studied it says never happened. But I think everyone agrees that his pun-filled on-language column exploring the intricacies uh, and abuses of the English language was worthy of admiration. I would note as an aside that his alliterations uh, provided for Vice President Agnew, by which he could, you know, be handed a club to beat the press with, did provide this correspondent with his first exposure to the then-new National Lampoon magazine back in about 1971, when it had a feature entitled, Write Your Own Agnew Speech, which had such phrases as, My friends, for too long we have been jaded by jibber-jabber. The time has come to hoist the hypocritical hussars of hedonism. Alternatively, my friends, for too long we have been voodooed by viragos. My friends, for too long we've been vexed by ventilation. The time has come to percuss the prima donnas of parasitism. Anyway, no, uh, Sapphire and the Nixon administration, including including, uh, my former nemesis, uh, Ben Stein, were the guys that invented this myth of the liberal media doing its best to thwart the silent majority of Americans who are trying to do the right thing. This stuff has long survived Spiro T. Agnew, and in fact is stronger than ever and will continue to be strong uh, in spite of the passing of Bill Sapphire. And for that matter, Irving Kristol, the godfather of neoconservatism, which, frankly, um, I think we'll leave off till next week's program. In the four and a half minutes we have left, let's go to the miscellaneous file. Here's an item that's irresistible. According to an upcoming biography, Boris Yeltsin was funny when drunk. In his upcoming book about the Clinton years, historian Taylor Branch notes that Bill Clinton revealed to him that a late-night drinking session during Yeltsin's 1995 visit to the White House ended when the then-Russian premier, staggering drunk and clad only in his underwear, made his way out onto Pennsylvania Avenue. Yeltsin was trying to hail a cab because he wanted pizza. And no, we have no explanation for how the combined forces of the KGB and Secret Service were unable to prevent the drunken Soviet premier from making his way out onto Pennsylvania Avenue. But, you know, I'm inclined to believe it happened. And the reason that I'm inclined to believe that that happened is that I have drunk with Russians. Let me tell you this, it's another public service announcement. Never drink with Russians. I I think you will find that their capacity for ethanol will exceed yours. Might not necessarily be true, but doggone it, folks, don't take the chance. I swore on a flight from Irkutsk to Moscow back in 1991 that that would be the last time in my life that I would have a hangover. And thankfully, that, that is still the case 18 years later. We talked on last week's show about, uh, about sports and how we have our doubts about uh, Division I football. At least the fact that certain football factories in America like to run up the score, beat up the opposition, and in general just behave in a way that's kind of, I think, loathsome to a 
to a sense of fair play, or at least sport being good, clean fun. So it's with some trepidation I look forward to Saturday, because although the California Aggie football team did win for the first time uh, uh, last Saturday, beating Western Oregon 29-13, they're going to go up this Saturday against Boise State. Last time I checked, uh, Boise State was number 8 on the national top 25, but uh, three teams ahead of it, Mississippi, Penn State, and our sister campus of Cal Berkeley, all lost, meaning Boise State's going to be probably ranked number 5th of the nation as UC Davis travels to Idaho. I, I do hope the boys, uh, the, I do hope the Aggie team gives it their best and, and, and fares well, and that for God's sakes, nobody gets hurt. Because I got a feeling that a uh, fifth-ranked Division I team, which, uh, you know, of course, eyes the prize of this uh, so-called mythical national championship, is going to run up the score if they get a chance. But it's my, uh, it is my hope that when I next report to you uh, a week from now that we'll be able to talk about the upset victory that took place up in Boise. And uh, here's an item I like. If you've ever been watching TV late in the evening, and of course, who hasn't, and notice that when the commercials came on, they just about blew you off the sofa. Well, of course, Americans have been complaining about this probably since, I know, at least the 60s and probably the 50s. Apparently, some lawmakers have finally gotten irked enough to request that the FCC do something about this. Apparently, uh, Anna Eshoo, I think from San Mateo, somewhere in the Bay Area, is trying to, uh, to, to raise cane on this, ish- on this matter and introduced the Commercial Advertisement Loudmit Mitigation Act, with the acronym CALM. If passed, it would require the FCC to set new limits on the volume of commercials. Well, you know, since advertisers drive commercials, you know, good luck. I wish Anna Eshoo well on this, but I I note that uh, back in the 60s, hard-of-hearing billionaire recluse Howard Hughes, arguably the most powerful man in the nation used to complain that even though he was almost deaf and would have the TV <laughs> just blasting at him in his hotel room where he sat in seclusion, when the commercials came on, they were so much louder they annoyed even him. And although he complained uh, to the station in Las Vegas, uh, apparently even Howard Hughes couldn't get him to turn it down. All right, final item of the day. It was noted that uh, Merv Griffin was the creator of my favorite uh, TV game show, Jeopardy. Being a musician and singer, Griffin decided to write the theme song. What he wrote was about 14 seconds worth of music. So Griffin changed the key, played it again, and ended that bump bump at the end. It expanded out to 30 seconds, which was the amount of time contestants need for the final Jeopardy answer. It turned out he had a pretty catchy tune on his hands. It gets played at sporting events. It's been played by the Boston Pops, and it's been described as one of the most lucrative themes in history. How lucrative, you ask? Well, in 2006, Merv Griffin estimated that he'd made $70 million in royalties from the tune. So as we end the show, and this program was produced by Edward McMillan, I think we'll go out with $70 million worth of music. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. Our thanks to David Watts Barton and Will Durst. I'm Douglas Everett, and we'll see you next week at the same time.